Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with your favourite actors and creatives in the world of musical theatre. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. Today we're going backstage with Jamie Armitage, the co-director of Six the Musical, whose most recent project, Southern Bells, is currently running at the King's Head Theatre as part of its queer season. Jamie took a break from rehearsing with the new alternates who were joining the cast of Six to have a chat with me in the Arts Theatre rehearsal space, which is on the top floor of the theatre. It has markings on the floor so the actors can practice the show as if they were on the actual stage. I feel like I say this with every episode we're recording at the moment, but thanks to London's lack of air conditioning, it was absolutely boiling up there, so we had to have the windows open, otherwise we probably would have died. Here's our conversation. Jamie Armitage, welcome to the Backstage With podcast. Hello. Are you actually working here today, or are you just we around? We are working here today. We own rehearsals with our amazing alternates for Six the Musical. And it's a lot of fun. People discovering new things about these new queens is always a joy to see. So we're in the rehearsal space and there is a pillar smack bang in the middle. Yes. Does, that, does that cause problems? We always thought that if you, um, I mean this is a slightly different configuration from how it normally is, but we always had a theory that we'd slightly altered the whole blocking of the show without realising to accommodate the fact that in the rehearsal room there's a pillar. But I think we've managed to soothe that out now so there's not just like one area of the stage we never ever go in. But yes, the, the massive pillar which is currently on the middle of the steps, does cause a few issues, which they just learn to negotiate and move around very well. Excellent. We will talk more about Six, but the the thing we are here to talk about is Southern Bells at the King's Head Theatre. Two act, one play, two one-act plays. It's such a mouthful. Two one-act plays. <laughs> just uh, wait till you get to the title of one of them. That's the thing which always had, trips people I've, up. I've written it down, and I couldn't, I didn't even try to say it earlier. Um, I'm going to let you do that. I would do um, that, yeah. Tell me about Southern Bells. So Southern Bells is made up of two one-act plays by Tennessee Williams. There's one called Something Unspoken, and there's one called And Tell Sad Stories of the Deaths of Queens. And so the first play, Something Unspoken, is about two women who've been living together for 15 years under the guise of a professional working relationship as employer and secretary, but that whole time they have been in love with one another. And the play is about the day when they finally begin to discuss those feelings and address the affection and yearning that has been bumbling along below the surface for the last 15 years unspoken about. And then the second play, And Tell Sad Stories of the Deaths of Queens, is about two men. Uh, One is called Candy. He's an interior decorator living in New Orleans and is openly gay and brings back a sailor to his flat one evening. And the year before, Candy had his heart broken by the husband, the love of his life, uh, leaving him. And so it is about Candy trying to find new love and trying to find whether this sailor who on the surface professes to be straight and is very assertive about that, but behind the bluff you get a sense that it's quite a sort of damaged, hurt soul who's uncertain about his own sexuality and it's about these two beautiful, complex characters sort of circling around one another trying to figure out if there's a shared existence for them together. So quite a few parallels between the two genders in the two plays that makes them fit quite Mm -hmm. well together. Yeah, absolutely. Was it you that said, let's put these two together? Because I know you did and tell sad stories of Deaths of Queens last summer. Absolutely, Did you want to do it again? 
The project came about because I was a trainee director at the King's Head the year after I left university and one of the amazing things they do is they give you the opportunity to pitch and then put on a short showcase um, of a work of your choosing and so the work I chose to do this time last year was a week-long run of and tell sad stories of the deaths of queens. We had five days of rehearsal, only did six performances and were a late night show on top of somebody else's set, but we got the most phenomenal response from the audience, from the theatre. They were so excited about this play. And so a couple of weeks after that, I sat down with the artistic director and he said, we want to bring back and tell sad stories of the death of Queens. And I was so happy about that. And he also said, can you find another Tennessee Williams one-act play which will use the same cast? So that would be another play which has an all-male cast because Tell Sad Stories has four men in it. And I said, I hear you. But there's a beautiful one-act play called Something Unspoken, which has two women in it. And I know that's tough because of um, budgets and things like that. But I'm going to have a larger cast. But please, can you just read it to see whether you like it? And he was a bit like, oh, OK, I'll give it a go. And then a few days later, I got the call from him saying, I love it. It's beautiful. We've got to find a way to make this work because the plays have never been paired together before. And so having an opportunity to have two plays which speak so beautifully to one another and feel so connected was a real honour to be able to do that for the first time. And then the joy through rehearsals and through the first few performances we've had is seeing there are more parallels than even I predicted when I first started this project. Then there's lovely little moments which echo each other. And the hope has been for this production is that it exists as a single production rather than just two isolated um, plays because they're quite different worlds, quite different characters, yet we wanted it to feel like a unified evening of theatre. And how did you get the title? Uh, The artistic director, Adam, came up with the title and and we were just trying to find something which linked them both together, which wasn't too literal because it would have been very very much not in the spirit of Tennessee Williams to call it anything which made it obvious what it was all about because effectively they're both stories about unspoken love but that's already in one of the titles and that doesn't feel like you know you're gonna go see a double bill of plays called unspoken love it's a bit just wanky. Feels, yeah it's a bit it's a bit generic as well yeah. and then adam just came up with this idea that both candy who is in and tells our stories the death of queen and cornelia who is the older character in something unspoken were former Southern Bells and that this that's a very Tennessee Williams concept obviously Blanche and Streetcar and and the general connotation of of Southern Bells absolutely and everything that is about like refinement and surface and performance just felt so in keeping with these stories and that's why it just seemed like the perfect title it was one of the things he told me he said I'll give you some days to think about I was like no no that is perfect that is what we are looking for and so happy that we managed to go ahead with it Were you a Tennessee Williams fan before all of this happened? Yeah, I got really into Tennessee Williams when I was at university. Um, I think through school, like most people, first taste of American literature or American drama was Arthur Miller, which I I love. But then it was only through university that I discovered a lot more about Tennessee Williams and um, realised that it was probably the playwright I connected a lot more with because there was something about the characters through all the plays, their sort of sense of loneliness, their sense of not speaking about what's below the surface and what they're truly feeling, which I found really exciting. And I remember so clearly the first time I ever saw a full stage production of a Tennessee Williams play, which was John Tiffany's version of The Glass Menagerie when it was up in Edinburgh. And it was the International Festival. And obviously the International Festival is a very different sort of audience, a slightly more severe, slightly more um, traditional theatre-going audience as opposed to the rowdier fringe-goers. Um, and so I went into the, the beautiful King's Theatre and just watched this production. And it blew my mind. The performances were beautiful. The set was astonishing. 
astonishing. The movement was exquisite. And I got to, it got to the end, and I was the only person who stood up. And I just gave it the kind of most defiant standing ovation ever. Well, everyone else was kind of sitting around, like, yes, yeah, it's a good show. It was very, very good. But I was just like so delighted by what I had seen and felt so much of an emotional power with it that I wanted to give it as much adulation as I could. The thing that I found really interesting when I was reading earlier about Tennessee Williams was, much mm. like E.M. Forster wrote Morris, and it wasn't published until after he died, one of the plays that makes up the two in Southern Bells wasn't performed until after he died. Is that for the same reasons? Because he was very quite open in his life in a way that E.M. Forster wasn't. Mm. It's really difficult to say because I spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago and they said oh is it because producers wouldn't give it money and it's kind of like well I don't think so I think it's something more complicated it's not clear whether he actually ever tried to get it on like he wrote it in the late 1950s and then it definitely sat in a drawer for a while and then he reworked it in the mid-1970s and put in uh, changed some of the names of the characters changed some of the scenarios slightly and refined it to what the script we have today is and so it's kind of a difficult one to know because also if he reworked it in the 1970s, that's after his memoirs came out. His memoirs are very explicit about um, the liaisons he has with men and a lot of them are a lot more um, out there uh, than anything that happens in the play. And so I don't think it necessarily would have been because of his own insecurities. He may have not just wanted it on or may have tried and just couldn't get any backing for it. So it's quite a difficult one to say, but I'm glad that it is being performed now and that people can come and see this beautiful story. This is part of the queer season at the King's Head. Are you working on any of the other shows or is this your baby that you're focusing entirely on? This is my baby which I'm focusing entirely on. All the other shows are late night slots and they're rotating on a week by week basis. One of the ones which I'm really excited about is Luke Mullins who's a phenomenal actor and plays Candy is also starring in The Stones which is a one person show written by an amazing Australian writer called Kit Brookman and it is a gothic mystery about how the past consumes the future and that's all he's told me about it but it sounds absolutely brilliant and so that is on um, in a couple of weeks time and I think it's going to be a really special show but a lot of the other plays sound so exciting about what they're dealing with and the topics they're discussing in various different styles and ways and so it's a really exciting season of work. Why do you think it's important to have a queer season in London theatre? I think the King's Head have always been amazing at championing that kind of work and I think over the last few years they've particularly um, been looking to vary this type of stories that are being told and so to increase their representation within the LGBTQ plus community uh, so it's not only male gay work which is getting put on obviously which there's a lot of historically as well but also trying to find work about um, uh, about women and their love stories or non-binary performers or that kind of thing and I think it's so important because I mean the biggest issue of representation is that seeing yourself gives you a sense of validation but also allows you to connect with stories in a different way and I think it's essential that King said keep on doing that kind of work and promoting those stories. Within the representation debate Mm -hmm. do you think we have a problem with body type representation in theatre in this country? Yes I do actually. There is a a kind of cliche I suppose it would be for a sort of image used to promote I mean, it's always specifically like male gay work, which is very exploitative about the bodies they put on the posters. And speaking to a lot of people about it, it makes them feel very uncomfortable. It makes them not want to go and see the show. And even though it appeals to certain people, it doesn't appeal to others. And so, yeah, I completely agree that the more work that can be done to increase the representation of bodies on stage is vital to making more people feel included, but also making it feel like the work is not just solely about 
physical attraction and sex. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but I think it's important that all the stories are being told rather than just a certain type. Let's talk about you. Yeah. Where did you grow up? When did you realise that you wanted to have a life in the theatre? I grew up in London. I realised I wanted to have a career in theatre. I suppose it was bubbling away in my head when I was a teenager, but never right at the front of my mind. Like, I, um, I enjoyed acting at school. I was okay at it. Like, I was good enough to get a role... I was not good enough to be doing lead roles. Like there was a uh, there was a mighty production of Hamlet where I was like soldier number four, and wasn't saying that was the pinnacle That's of my acting. Quite hard for a school production of Ham- yeah. like Hamlet. I know, right? <laughs> it's like a bold choice. I think that's a lot of I think that's a lot of school drama anyway. It's like um, ambitious choices, and so I did a little bit of school and enjoyed it, and did a bit more at university. But it was only through university once I did more comedy writing, comedy performing. That I was kind of like, okay, I feel that feels like my avenue which I wanted to pursue and I loved it I had so much fun doing that but it was when I was in my second year that someone gave me a lovely bit of advice which was that they noticed that I thought about shows in terms of construction rather than just from an audience point and they said while you're still at university give directing a go because it's quite difficult to get given the opportunity and the chance just to have a little bit of a budget to do whatever you like and so I went, okay, I follow your advice. And I went straight in and did Henry IV Part One as my first ever production, which was, looking back on it, a slightly strange choice, but I just, all I knew at the time, I was like, well, I'll do a play which I really love, which was that. I wanted to do Shakespeare's in a way which weren't necessarily being done at my university at that moment in time. And from the first few rehearsals onwards, I just knew that any thoughts I had that I wanted to be a performer kind of dissolved away because... All the self-consciousness that I felt when I was on stage was gone when I was directing. I felt very comfortable doing it. I loved being able to work with actors who are much more naturally adept at performing and staying in the moment as opposed to me who was always analysing myself and, oh, I wonder what the audience are thinking of me right now or oh, I hope I'm coming across well, which is like the worst thing for an actor to be thinking on stage. But when it came to directing, that was actually quite helpful to be thinking about what will an audience think of this moment? How are they experiencing this? How does this fit into the story as a whole? And so I've never really looked back since then. Where did you go to university? I went to Cambridge. Okay. Because I have it down here that you went to a French school as well. I went to a French clown school to do a course in clowning and le jeu, which is uh, the game playing which underlies acting. So was that after university? That was during university. That was so during I did it across the summer. And it was one of the most exciting and important forms of education I've had. It was weeks and weeks in... Um, in a small room in a town outside uh, Paris where there was this amazing old master clown called Philippe Gaulier who is genuinely a genius and the funniest person I've ever met and like the people who have been through that school are like uh, Sasha Baron Cohen Emma Thompson went there for a bit uh, Helena Bonham Carter and Calma Crystal who's the who's probably best known for being the comedy director on One Man Two Governors but also has done like Gifford Circus has done work at the ENO and is a brilliant comedy mind and he was the one who kind of suggested that I go and check out because he knew that comedy was a massive passion of mine. That was more when I was still doing performing. But all the lessons I learned there about like discovering the joy in performance, releasing the self-conscious and trying to activate people's instincts was so useful when it came to directing, even though at that moment in time I did not know that I was, would end up using any of those skills for directing work. When it comes to directing, mm-hmm. we know that there are auditions for actors to get jobs and help them move through their careers. 
What about directors? If you, if you aren't plugged into a network of people who can help you or who have influence or who can send work your way, mm. how do you start? But also, how do you continue your career? So there's a combination of ways. So one route, which is important and I think useful but not essential, is assistant directing. And so I got my first three assistant jobs through the King's Head because they have a trainee director scheme there, which is specifically pitched as a kind of alternative masters. Um, directing masters are very expensive and I was not certain whether I wanted to do one. I didn't think I could afford one and I didn't think that it was the most useful because people are still uncertain about whether it was the best thing to do um, with one's time. And so I went to the King's Head because they were very much saying you don't need previous professional experience. We're looking for people very early who probably just graduated or are just thinking about going into directing. And so that's where the first few jobs came. So having a connection with that building and then with the other people I met through my work from there has been quite important to finding opportunities. But then the main thing, and this is where assistant assisting is not always the most important thing is connecting with writers and connecting with people who are telling stories and Twitter is one of the most amazing things to this like OV Connect do those hashtags every now and again where you kind of say hey I'm a director who's interested in doing this kind of work this kind of work this kind of work I'm looking to meet writers and you will always get I don't know, like get half a dozen to a dozen responses of people saying, hey, can I send you my script? And you go and meet these people. And sometimes you get on really well and you're like, okay, okay, let's talk about getting this project going. But like finding writers that you connect with is probably the most important thing if you're interested in new writing. Like Six came about because I knew the composers, uh, the composer and writers from uh, university and we'd worked together before on a show. And so we kind of went off to do this student show um, with the hope that it would just be a good student show and that has kind of opened various doors from just connecting with writers at early points. In terms of doing classics it's just finding stories that you love reading a lot and getting these scripts, kind of like a wish list almost of things so that um, when you get the opportunity to talk to artistic directors or to producers who are best contactable by sending letters, which feels very old school but is a very nice personal way of showing that you are genuinely interested in talking to these people because an anonymous email will almost always be ignored but a personal letter can, not definitely, but can get a response from a director so I really recommend that as a way of meeting people and connecting into the network. That's a great tip. When it comes to new writing, do you think it's harder than it should be to find and develop new good writing? If there were more opportunities to develop scripts, then that would always lead to better work because usually the biggest reason for something not being fantastic at the production level is time. And whether that be time for the writer to write another draft or, most importantly, through workshopping to figure out what the play is and get a sense of what it could be and how it could be performed, if there were more opportunities and time to do that, obviously that would help. And I think... the place that's most noticeably lacking at the moment is in musical theatre because it is so expensive and that is the biggest prohibitive reason for work not getting developed properly because with a play you need a couple of actors a director and the writer and if everyone's getting paid what they think is a fair wage then that's not expensive hopefully if you can get you know there's free rehearsal space there's stuff that can be done and a lot of the bigger buildings are actually quite good about offering rehearsal space to the, vel- to, to the development of new plays but with musicals it's a different beast because they take so long to do they're very difficult but just to get them learn just to even get them to a point where you can do a showing you need a lot of um, musical talent you need a lot of time learning uh, the material and that will always be the thing which 
holds it back and until people are willing to invest more at like the most fundamental early stage of both a work's life but also a writer's career it means that we'll never quite reach the American standard because the way they produce and develop work over there is completely different from us it seems a lot more rigorous it seems a lot better resourced but also that's linked to what their culture thinks of musical theatre where they really praise it and they put it into the centre of their outlook of what live performance is in a way that Britain does not quite Maybe it will change, but definitely doesn't seem different yet. I hope it does. There's a there's a certain snobbiness, isn't there? Some like it's like a musical has to prove itself to to the audience before people will say, okay, we'll go and see it. And it's ridiculous because that comes from. It's difficult to say where it comes from because it's not the audience. It's a certain type of theatre goer, perhaps, or perhaps the critics, or it's not always clear. But yeah, that snobbishness does exist. But it's strange because that's not because audiences go like musicals are much more popular than plays. If you I always say to friends who are like really interested in political work, is like if you want to reach a wider group of people, which should be your aim if you're doing political work rather than talking to people who just already agree with you, which does have its benefits in some ways, but if you want to really like get a bold message out there, then do a musical if you can, um, if you're lucky enough to have the opportunity, because it will find a much wider base of people. People get really excited about it. It's very entertaining, but can also be informative. And I think if you look at a couple of the shows which have been done recently, I think everybody's talking about Jamie would be a good example of finding a story which reaches a lot of people and probably exposing something which they haven't seen before, don't know much about. And that's really exciting. And so audiences on a much wider scale seem really inclined to go to musicals, whereas some people seem a bit swish about their very existence. Let's talk about six. Let's talk about six. If you don't mind. You knew the writers from university. Mm-hmm. Were you on board from the very beginning? Yes, I came on board when they had written none of the songs. All they knew when I came on board, which was February 2017, was that they had this amazing concept, which was the Six Wives of Henry VIII as a girl band doing a pop concert to tell their side of the story. And they also had this amazing mission plan which is a six point plan of what they wanted the show to be what they wanted the show to celebrate what they wanted to avoid doing during the show and that was kind of one of our main discussion points was about what the ambition for the show was and what it could potentially be and so I was very lucky to get to see the whole creation process of kind of hearing Don't Lose Your Head, which is a lot of people's favourite song. Hearing that for the first time in Toby's sitting room with Lucy sort of sitting beside, doing the backing vocals, and it was such a lovely moment. I remember the whole of that first session where they played me the first few songs they had. And then as they developed it and improved it, and they kept on refining it, and I think that's one of the most amazing things about Toby and Lucy, not only, like, the prodigious levels of talent, but also their work ethic is incredible. Like, they refine the show, and we've been refining that even though we've been open in London for seven months we did a couple of weeks ago a few more refinements just to tighten a few moments just to get a laugh which had never quite been landing just to make sure that it is the best possible version of the show and I think that's incredible because they they could rest on their laurels they were getting praise they were getting exposure in a really on a really incredible level but they kept on working to make it the best possible show that it is today. It's rare that such a small show becomes the beast it's become in terms of word of mouth and popularity. What did you all do to help it become this massive thing? Was that part of the six-point plan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we kind of knew that we, we didn't want to just create a bit of work that would be praised for its ambition. We wanted it to be praised for its execution. Um, great, great. Uh, thank you very much. Um, there are so there are so many six wise puns which just kind of crop up the whole time. Um, and so 
we we knew that, like the idea was really good. The idea was really exciting, and if it could be pulled off and pitched in the right way, it wouldn't be laughed at in the wrong way. And so, even though we were also students and we were working with student performers, I had been out for a year and been assisting on a lot of shows, and so kind of tried to bring the work ethic and practices that I'd learned from assisting to a student project, so that it was tight across the board it was really specific and driven and from a like an actor's perspective it was it had intention and it was really clear about even though you know it's pop concert we're performing out and there's not much staging in terms of setting a scene but you still could very much understand what heart of stone which is an abstract power ballad about um jane seymour on her deathbed saying goodbye to her husband and her son was about from an emotional perspective so that was the um the way that we were looking to make sure that it was a very, very, very good student show. But that was all we were aiming for it to be. We just wanted to, you know, have a nice run up at Edinburgh, not be embarrassed about it in front of our friends, and maybe we'd get a few people to come along and see it, and that'd be nice. But it was just supposed to be on for that month. And the fact that it is still on two years later was not in anybody's plan at that moment in time. When you're working on this show, I mean, as, as someone who's seen it a couple of times... I haven't listened to it for a couple of weeks, but I still can wake up in the night and be like, hey, Howard is... Hey. Do the songs get stuck in your head even more than people who see it in town? I think the songs are ingrained into my soul by this point in time. Like, I've, I've heard them so many times, but they still delight me again and again. And from the first project, which I did with Toby and Lucy, which was a, uh, a pantomime about Robin Hood, which... It was a brilliant bit of work from Toby who did the compositions for it. It was just astonishing. And Lucy was the choreographer on it and did an amazing job of all the dances and that. There are still hooks from that, which was four, no, three and a half years ago, nearly four years ago when I first heard those music. And they are incredible. It's work. And that's Toby's genius with music is that he is fascinated by pop music and hooks. And as well as that, also traditional musical theatre, particularly Sondheim, like he draws on such a wide range of influences. And I think that's what sets uh, him and Lucy out as really interesting voices in musical theatre is that they are doing things which are in, like, can very much have the intention of being exciting, of being evocative, of being catchy, but in a way which is also very like clever and well thought through. And that's what's so brilliant. It's like, yeah, they're catchy, but also the lyrics. Some of the rhymes in that show oh, are just, just incredible. Like, um, in that first time when I heard the first um, few versions of the song, and I heard a bit in Anne Boleyn's song where it goes, tried to elope, but the Pope said no part only, hope was Henry. And I, my jaw just dropped because that is so tightly woven, but it's so clear. There's no kind of extraneous rhyme words, which sometimes crops up in other songs where you can feel that you know they really wanted to rhyme something with goat and so they've tried to work boat into a sentence before or something like that even though that's not what the character would be thinking or talking about like that's what's good about six and a lot of their other work is it makes perfect sense but is also very clever and expressive and i really love that what they've written isn't just you know parodied pop songs they stand up in their own right as just great great songs Mm. and that is just such a testament to their annoyingly amazing talent. (laughs) Last night, Toby saved the show. Very uh, true. Playing Catherine Parr. I mean, and just another string to his bow. He's an amazing performer. But that's how I first knew him was um, as an actor. Like he came, I was in second year when Toby was in first year and 
he was this incredible performer that everybody knew about straight away because he did a series of roles, some which were in theatre, some which were uh, musicals, and he was brilliant. He was just so alive and electric on stage. And then, it, and I think I vaguely knew he did music, but it was only when he came in for his meeting about potentially composing for the panto that I sort of saw this sort of very exuberant first year come in and be like, oh, and I've also, you know, I do a little bit of music, do a little bit of songs here's some of my music and he played it and I went wow that's special and yeah that man has a lot of strings to his bows and seeing him perform last night I was very I was lucky enough to be there and I think we all thought well, the associate director and I we were thinking that he would be um, wearing what he'd been wearing when we'd been practicing the concert version he was wearing sort of jeans and a six t-shirt and his trainers and we're like, okay cool you know that'd be nice give it a nice sort of informal atmosphere and then the curtain opened at the beginning of the show and they did their walk down and suddenly came through this incredible very tall elegant figure and it was Toby and he'd got costume he'd got like a pair of uh, leather shorts the kind of band top which has all the metal balls on it and these amazing heels and the most spectacular hoop earrings you've ever seen in your life and he performed Par, which was completely gorgeous. If you had to go on as a queen, hmm. and you could choose, which one would you go on as? We always stop around. There is, um, there is a secret version of the show, which is yet to be done, which is all the creatives playing various queens. And I think in terms of suitability, I would probably, like, from what the comedy is from, I'd probably want to perform Berlin. But I'll probably end up performing Catherine Howard. I can't sing Catherine Howard. I can't, very, I can't really sing at all. But in terms of, like, an energy, that was always the one which um, people joked I was most connected with. So one of those two I'll be quite happy to play. That's a great answer. In terms of future projects, mm-hmm. you talked about having a wish list of, of work. Oh, yes. Are you willing to share anything that's on it? I think I can share the ones which are kind of the big enough shows that they're on a lot of people's wish lists it's no secret I would like love to perform them but the opportunity to do so would be outrageous and it's probably many decades away but I think like a lot of directors who love musical theatre cabaret would be really high up on my list I think it is a work of complete genius I think that it is so open to different interpretations which still honour the original story so I suppose that would be the one that I'd willingly offer up as a project which I do hope before I finish my life and career I get to do I think you've got plenty of time <laughs> before we go when can we see Southern Bells until Southern Bells is on until the 24th of August at the King's Head Theatre and tickets can be bought from the King's Head Theatre website fabulous thank you so much thank you Next time on the podcast, we're going backstage with the Broadway performer and TV actor Andy Mientis, who's currently starring in The View Upstairs at the Soho Theatre in London. Subscribe to Backstage With on your podcast app if you don't want to miss it. And while you're there, I would be so grateful if you could leave a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. Listener.